Now we're about to listen to the second episode of Lucia Martinez's series on balancing spirituality and social justice work. This week, Lucia talks with Reverend Daniel Erdman. He's a spiritual leader, educator, and activist who was born and grew up in Oaxaca, Mexico, has lived most of his adult life in New Mexico, and worked for four years in Nicaragua to oppose a U.S. intervention there in the 1980s. These are topics that are new to me as a youth and aren't taught in school. Indeed, Nadal. It was way before we were born, and some of our parents were just children at the time. So let's do a quick history lesson. To help us with this is Rashad Mahmoud, a staff member of Generation Justice. Hi, Rashad. Can you give us a short history lesson on what was happening in Nicaragua during the time that Reverend Erdman was a young activist there? Sure, Nadal. The conflicts in Nicaragua were a difficult time in the country's history. Reverend Erdman was there during the height of the conflict. It was a few years after the leftist Sandinistas kicked out the brutal dictator Somoza in 1979. But then there was opposition to the Sandinistas by remnants of the old dictatorship and others. The U.S. was concerned that the Sandinista government was too close to communist Russia, so it started funding the anti-Sandinista forces, which became known as the Contras. This contributed to a violent insurgency that lasted for years. During the revolution and Contra conflict, an estimated 70,000 people were killed mostly civilians. What a catastrophe! I read that the Reagan administration was so committed to funding the contrast that it broke the law to do it. Congress had passed a restriction on sending money to to support them, so they had the CIA sell weapons to Iran, which was also illegal, and then gave the profits to the contrast. This became known as the Iran-Contra scandal. Now that we know a little bit more about the history of the events in Nicaragua, let's hear the discussion between Lucia Martinez and Reverend Daniel Erdman. This is so interesting, and although Reverend Erdman talks about the sadness of that era, he also has many uplifting things to say. This is Lucia Martinez, an intern with Generation Justice. I created this radio series on the relationship between spirituality and social justice as a way to sort through an issue I've been grappling with. More specifically, I wanted to understand how I can create balance in my life. To me, this means maintaining physical and mental well-being while remaining dedicated to the realization of social justice in my community and the world as a whole. In Spanish, the social justice movement is often referred to as la lucha, the struggle. Such work is a struggle because it demands dedication, courage, strength, and resilience. Often, the most committed to social justice are people who are directly affected by injustice. It is they who have transformed the struggle to simply survive into the struggle for dignity and human rights. Those who engage in this struggle do so for their children and for generations to come. I had the privilege of being raised in a community of Chicano activists and artists in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The community was my childhood playground. Our family outings consisted of protests, political art exhibits, and gatherings with local community organizers and curanderos. My personal values were established through activism around local, national, and global issues, such as the protection of water rights, preventing the degradation of sacred indigenous sites, Palestinian self-determination, immigration reform, access to health care, and education equity. Passed on to me was a strong sense of responsibility for my community as a whole, but particularly for those disenfranchised individuals within it. I grew a passion for community work and grassroots organizing. This 
ultimately was motivated by my love of community and an unwavering belief in the value of human life. It is in this work that I found my sense of purpose, my passion for life and for learning. Yet my conceptualization of social justice work has always been separate from my spiritual work. In the past two years, I have found myself consistently angry at the world for being so oppressive and increasingly hopeless as the work I had been doing for nearly eight years had seemingly brought no real victories for my community. Racism, classism, sexism, and heterosexism are still ingrained in every aspect of society. I found myself organizing out of anger at all the injustice, making it so that after a while, injustice was all that I could see. I believe in approaching life with a critical lens and in the importance of understanding one's own position in the world. However, my critical lens turned into a cynical lens as I lost faith in the work I had always been so passionate about continuing. In other words, I hit burnout. I knew that something had to change, and so I set out to find answers to all of my questions. Returning to Generation Justice for an internship allowed me the space to explore these questions in a more formal way. This series will explore how others have dealt with this question. Where do social justice and spirituality intersect? Can they work together in order to promote a healthier lifestyle for the organizer and make positive impact on the world? In order to find answers to my many questions, I have interviewed a combination of community organizers and spiritual leaders whose social justice work and spiritual growth are not conceptualized as separate from one another. It is my hope that finding the answers to my own questions will also give strength, energy, and resources to other young organizers who are also struggling to create balance. So I understand you used to be the outreach minister for the New Mexico Conference of Churches. Um, what are you doing now? I'm uh, working with a small uh, Spanish-speaking Presbyterian church in Lancaster, uh, helping the pastor. She has been there for probably 10 years as pastor, and I knew about this church and wanted to come help out with that. I also work as an interpreter, interpreting in, in, in the court system and in the hospital system, and uh, sometimes conferences, which is what I was doing this week. Great. So um, if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you ended up where you are now. Uh, well, um, my parents were uh, living in Albuquerque in uh, 1941, and they um, decided to go in response to a call from the Presbyterian Church. They decided to go work in Mexico. So my parents decided to move to Mexico to work with the Presbyterian Church there. And so they, they did that in about 1942. They learned Spanish, and, and uh, they lived in the state of Oaxaca in the southern part of Mexico. So I was born and raised there, uh, and really lived there till I started high school, with a, couple, a few visits to the U.S., but mostly I lived in Mexico. So I came to the U.S. in high school and uh, went through you know, a lot of culture shock and things like that from <laughs> leaving, leaving what I knew as home in Mexico and coming here even though I spoke English and, you know, I looked like an Anglo and everything. But, um, it was kind of a strange, difficult time. Uh, but I did finish high school and went out to college. And then after college, I, I uh, actually was able to get a job in Albuquerque at Manal School. And I, I taught there uh, five years, and, um, and then I uh, went to seminary to study for the ministry, and that was in New Jersey. And um, uh, so I finished that course of study, went back to Albuquerque, and was there a few years, and then felt really strongly that I needed to go to Central America, to Nicaragua. 
that was because of the, the war going on at the time where the U.S. was supporting the Contras in Nicaragua, and I felt that that was very unjust on the part of the, the uh, U.S. administration, the Reagan administration. wanted to do my part as a U.S. citizen to, to um, resist that, and so I went to Nicaragua for four years and um, actually met uh, my wife there. And um, we came back after four years. I was uh, there longer than she was, but we finally ended up back in Pennsylvania and got married and, and uh, then went to New Mexico in 1992, and we were there for uh, 20 years until last, uh, last summer. That's fascinating. Um, I really like to hear people's stories about what they kind of wanted to do with their lives and then how they ended up to where they got now because it's not really it's usually not like a linear progression and i certainly in my experience isn't isn't linear at all i had no idea what the next thing was going to be <laughs> a lot of them were just by chance or, you know some opportunity that came up so um i think social justice work manifests in in differently in different people's lives and you've talked a little bit about how it's manifested in your life but um would you mind elaborating on that what social justice looks like in your life when I was working in Nicaragua, you know, it was, it was a war zone. It was a very difficult time. A lot of people were suffering. I had grown up, of course, in Mexico, and there were, you know, lots of poor people there and so forth, but I'd never been, you know, in a war where people were, like, fleeing for their lives and, you know, seeing people killed and stuff like that. And I was in a small village in, in Nicaragua. We went to a funeral. It was a funeral for a young man who had, who had been killed by the Contra, and, um, you know, they were... they went out of the church to the cemetery, and they were lowering his body into the ground. And, and um, you know, I was standing there, and I saw this, this old man across on the other side of the grave, and, and it was the guy's father. And somehow I knew, without him telling me, I knew that, that this was his only son that he was burying. And I just stood there just amazed. And, and later I, I asked, and indeed it was, his only son. And at that moment, uh, the words of, of a song by José Martí came to me, Con los pobres de la tierra quiero echar mi suerte. Uh, with, the, with the poor of the land, that's where I want to cast my lot. And I just realized that that was what had drawn me to Nicaragua, was this sense that people were, you know, they were already struggling, they were already poor, they were already, you know, barely making ends meet. And then on top of that, they had to suffer this war. And to me, it just seemed so completely unfair that, you know, a bunch of old men in Washington D.C. were deciding the fate of these people by sending money to buy guns to, to kill them. And it, it just seemed to me like, I can't let this stand. And I, I suddenly realized at that moment, that was why I, I had gone to Nicaragua. Maybe before that, I hadn't really been able to put it into words succinctly as that. But what I discovered was much more than that. The longer I was there, the more I began to realize, I'm not just here to give and to help. I'm actually receiving more than I'm getting. I'm actually learning more than I'm, I'm teaching. I'm actually being given much more than I, than I could give by, by people who were, you know, in spite of being poor, in spite of being in the middle of a war, they were so generous, they were so helpful, they were so kind, uh, they were so hopeful. And, yeah, they knew they were in a difficult situation, and they would ask for our help, to get, you know, to tell their story back in the U.S. to put an end to the war. But at the same time, they were, you know, they were committed to to staying there and to to doing this work, and I realized, wow, what, what kind of spiritual power do these people have? You know, where does that come from to have that kind of 
determination and the, the ability to be so generous when things are so hard and when people are treating them so badly. And so that was that was an inspiration to me of how to see the world a little bit differently. It's really beautiful. You painted a picture of the strength of people who are suffering in incredible hardship. And then you talked about um, the spiritual strength. And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that, also in terms of your own experience in Nicaragua and, and your experience doing work there. What was the connection with your faith and your spirituality? That was a time of crisis. It was a time when what's important in life was really made clear. As a team of people from the U.S. that was working there, we were in some danger. We were never in as much danger as, as, as many Nicaraguans. Uh, we always knew, you know, we had a U.S. passport. We could leave. Also, many of us looked Anglo or looked foreign, you know, weren't going to be mistaken for a Nicaraguan and, you know, maybe shot accidentally because somebody thought we were, you know, in, in one group or another. And as we worked together as a team, I began to realize every time we had a meeting together, we all had to realize and deal with the fact that maybe somebody that we would see, somebody we were with, that we might never see them again. Um, because there were instances where, you know, one of our coworkers you know, just barely missed climbing on a truck as a passenger, and that truck was blown up by a landmine. At one point, I was in a village uh, where a truck had just been blown up outside of town, and and the next time I had to walk out of town, I'm walking along, you know, looking at the dirt road, like, <laughs> every step of the way to see if there are landmines buried. You know, I was, I was, I was terrified by this, the prospect of, uh, of getting blown up. And so just knowing that life is so risky and so, uh, you know, could end at any moment really underlined for me how precious every moment of life is and how precious each person is, because it is limited. You know, it does come to an end, and so it's that much more valuable. The experience in Nicaragua kind of underlined just how how much we can accomplish uh, and how much we're called to do with our work and how and how much strength that takes because it, it was draining. Um, it was draining because of uh, the dangers, but it was also draining because people would come and go, um, you know, members would finish their term of service and leave the team and it was hard to say goodbye to them, too, even if they were just, you know, coming back to the United States. We probably wouldn't, wouldn't run into them again either, except in some cases. And so it, was, it got to be hard to be saying hello and goodbye to people. And after a while, some people would just kind of give up and not even want to get to know the new people because uh, they're going to be leaving in six months anyway. So, you know, why should we make friends? That was, that was hard. You know, that was painful. Um, but it's kind of like, well, okay, so you're only going to be with somebody for a while, but does that mean you don't try to reach out? Does that mean you don't try to connect? Um, I don't think so. I think it's it's important to keep doing that uh, for their sake and for our sake, too, even if it's just for a few months or a few weeks or whatever it is. I think I learned the value of celebration as well. That was one thing that I saw in many ways it, uh, among people in Nicaragua, and I've seen it among people since then, too, but really underlined to me there in a, in a war situation how people could set all that aside and, and, and just celebrate for a while, whether it was, you know, somebody's birthday or whether it was the time of being able to be together uh, for a fiesta or something, and people just feeling like, okay, life isn't, isn't all great, but at this moment we're going to be happy and <laughs> we're going we're gonna to enjoy this moment we're going to enjoy each other. 
and and learning to celebrate uh, with people in Nicaragua, uh, Nicaraguans, and also people from the U.S. on our team um, in different ways, and to honor the different ways that people celebrate and the different ways that they understand their spirit to work, and and to be more open-minded about what. Uh, not concerned so much about what people believe, but about what it leads them to do in their life. And that's really something that's that's become very important to me. I think that's beautiful, and I can definitely agree with that. I think that's a way for us all to unite together in, in fighting the good fight and doing the work that needs mm-hmm. to be done. Yeah, way back, some of the churches in the U.S. were trying to get together and collaborate more. They said, uh, they came up with this short saying, it just said, doctrine divides, service unites. Mm-hmm. And they agreed, you know, they could argue forever about their teachings and <laughs> not come to an agreement, but they could all agree that hungry people need to be fed. You know, they could all agree that people without homes need to have shelter. They could all agree that people who are sick need health care. Um, they could agree on that and they could work for that, even if they couldn't agree on you know, their, their religious teachings or their beliefs. Thank you for that. I just wrote that down. Doctrine divides, service unites. I'm interested to hear what the connection between spirituality, whatever that may be, and um, social justice work is for you. I'm a Christian, and uh, I'm a certain type of Christian. There might be other Christians who would say I'm not a Christian, <laughs> but uh, I'll let them worry about that. So when I talk about my own spiritual journey, I don't do it uh, to put down anyone else's spiritual journey or to say that they're wrong. I just say, this is what's been right for me. And what's been right for me has been to come to know and understand what I believe Jesus of Nazareth was all about. Uh, And to me, he's kind of the the guide, the leader, uh, the one I look to uh, as an example, as an inspiration, uh, as a source of hope. And what I understand from his life is that, number one, putting yourself out there and unconditionally loving everybody, no matter where they are at in their life, is a key principle of of showing what God is like, as far as I know. I really think that Jesus shows the divine as much as can be shown in a human being, and does that primarily by through through love and through uh, self-giving love. It's not it's not a sentimental kind of love, but one that sees people very clearly, uh, accepts them as they are, accepts them where they are, uh, but also invites them into uh, something greater, invites them into something uh, new, something transforming. And and to me, that's, that involves the whole person, and it's about, it's not just a head thing. It has to do with our relationships. It has to do with the way that we um, approach the, the the world too. It's not just people, you know. It's the whole uh, the whole world, all of all of uh, creation. I get discouraged, and uh, I feel like you know, there's there's not much that's that I'm accomplishing, and and I think that's okay because I think that um, everybody has those times. I think Jesus had those times. I think he went through real dark periods where you just felt like, you know, I'm not getting anywhere, I don't know what to do, uh, everything looks bad. But somehow uh, he found the, the spiritual resources to 
to move forward. I think part of that was because of the community he built, uh, calling these men and women to together to live a, a new in a new way. I think part of it was his own private uh, or individual uh, connection with God, which 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 he emphasized a lot and which was a source of strength to him. And I think both of those things, both connections with God and with other people, both sustained him and uh, made him able to walk the, the road that he walked. And um, I think that he puts that as an example for me as well, and that uh, I need to seek that strength in, in, in the Spirit and in other people as well. So, so my spirituality is very specifically a, a following of Jesus and um, who, I, who I believe to be. And so that um, calls me, uh, pulls me, pushes me, whatever word you want to use, uh, moves me to, to continue to, to seek to reach out, um, especially to those who are uh, in the most difficult situations, uh, not only to them, uh, for me, you know, coming from my background, I, I find it easy to reach out to, uh, you know, Latino immigrants who are uh, going through struggles and poverty right now, because that's kind of, you know, the background that I grew up with in Mexico. Um, sometimes it's harder for me to reach out to some other people because I don't have as much of a common experience with them. Uh, that's that's one of the struggles that I have is trying to understand how this this unconditional love can really reach out to, to all kinds of people, and uh, and, he, and to you know to people who are well-to-do and, and wealthy as well. They they have they have a need uh, for community. They have a need to maybe be freed from their obsession with wealth. I mean, they're they're, and I need to learn better how to approach people who have a lot in terms of what a lot is defined by our society. Uh, a lot of stuff, you know, but, but maybe feel empty anyway because uh, they don't see any any point. Um, so yeah, so that's that's where it connects with me, and and working for change, uh, for systemic change, um, to create more more justice in the world, uh, to work with other people on that is important to me. Um, but then I can't forget the individuals either, you know, the persons who are individually suffering or in need, um, or people that uh, that I can be in in uh, solidarity with, people that I can be in community with. Because um, I think that's that's another place where following Jesus really puts a puts a a call, uh, puts out a call to me to, to be. Uh, and again, that's that's not always easy. I mean, sometimes you know, you're at, the, at the end of a long day, you're tired and you don't want to do you know one more thing. <laughs> Suddenly appears as a, as a need, um, and those are the times when it's it's really the hardest to to respond to that call, uh, to to walk behind Jesus to to follow where He has led. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I really resonated with the idea of service out of love and that social justice should be motivated by our unconditional love for the world, for others. And I think that's the only like sustainable way to do it. One of the things that I want to do is to kind of create a more sustainable organizing culture. And that's just, I mean, I, I organize on my campus right now. And so 
I definitely like it starts at the individual level with, with myself and moving beyond anger, but also to like create a community of, of other organizers and students who work that way. And I'm interested what you think or how, how I should go about doing that. Well, I think one of the, one of the most important things is, is to uh, develop relationships with the other people who are doing the work. Um, to have the, uh, the work be more about more than just the work. Uh, and by that I mean to, to have people who are uh, working together and, and, and affecting change, but who are also, as you say, it starts with yourself, and working on themselves, and not only individually, but also working on the way that, that uh, they relate to other people. And I think, you know, there are ways of, of, of doing that that, um, I mean, they take time, but I think they're valuable in the sense of taking the time to sit down with, with, with somebody that I work with and, um, and get to know them better, find out what it is that motivates them to do this work. You know, what is it that's, that really gives them the impetus to, to keep going when things are, are tough? And, and what is, over the years, as they look back, you know, what has been... Um, the motivation or motivations that that compel them to to long for for justice, to long for a, a more just world, and to uh, act, enact that in some way. Um, and I think a, a, a good, healthy sense of curiosity is part of that. You know, just to uh, not directly ask somebody, you know, what is it that makes you tick, but. <laughs> But to have that kind of attitude, you know, what is it that motivates you? What is your passion? What really gets gets you excited about about this work and about uh, doing this? What really motivates you? And to find out, not with not with the idea that okay, now I know, you know, I can get you on my agenda, <laughs> but but just to say, so how can we work together? Given that you have this passion and I have this passion, and you know, we have these these uh, things uh, may be in common that we can work on together and, and, uh, and develop so that people do feel energized by the work rather than just feeling like, oh, my gosh, here I go again. You know, here's another burden that I have to pick up um, because it is a burden. I mean, it, you know, and, and Jesus was very clear about that. You know, he said, he said you, you, have to, you have to pick up the burden and follow me. It's, it's not an easy thing. Um, but what, what makes it possible to do is that even though it's not easy, uh, you do have the strength to do it. And I think building up that strength is, is the most important thing. And, I, and I, for me, at least, one of the ways to be strengthened is through uh, relationships with other people that, that aren't just about the work, but are about them and me as well as, as people, as, as human beings uh, that, that value each other. Um, and it doesn't have to be like where we become, you know, best friends or bosom buddies or anything. It's, it's more that we understand and appreciate what the other person is about and what they're trying to accomplish and, and uh, are willing to, to work with them in that even when things get tough. And it, and it motivates us to, to work together. So I think that's, I think that's one of the big things about, about organizing um, is, is um, developing those relationships and that solidarity with each other that is more than just let's get the job done you know let's let's get the, get let's get to this task and get it accomplished because um, if that happens then you know once you finish the task what's your connection <laughs> you know the task is done and <laughs> there's no more connection um, so it's it's a very conscious kind of 
building of of uh, relationships and, and building of community that that happens uh, with the understanding that there will always be a struggle. You know, there will always be something for us to work on, and maybe you know this this time uh, I'll be working with these people, and next time you know there'll, there'll be maybe this other group of people, maybe some of the same. Uh, but we'll all continue knowing that somehow we are all uh, struggling toward the same objectives and uh, and that we understand each other a little better as a result of, of having worked together. We didn't just, you know, stand side by side and work on a project and then mm-hmm. say goodbye. But we actually have some kind of history with each other. I think that's that's a very important part of organizing. Thank you so much. I think that was really beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time after work <laughs> to talk with me. Oh, sure. um, I really appreciate it. Thanks for asking me. I, I appreciate it. Upon reflection on my conversation with Reverend Daniel Erdman, I realized that much of what he said resonated with me. While he was working in Nicaragua during the Civil War, he learned the value of celebration, especially when in crisis. Life is precious and time is limited. It is important to celebrate the people we love and the moments we have with them. I appreciated that Reverend Erdman also talked about the value of creating conscious relationships in forming sustainable organizing culture. Both Reverends, Quintana and Erdman, expressed that the best way to counter oppression is to create an organizing culture in the image of the world we are working towards. A culture in which each of us can experience being loved, valued, and cherished. At the core of this is creating conscious relationships with other organizers so that the work is about much more than just organizing. It is about learning and trusting and creating with one another. Healthy relationships within the organizing structure are vital to the overall health of the movement. People have been organizing for social justice forever. If the work being done decades ago is coming into realization now, then the work we are doing today may take a few decades to become tangible. Our vision for the future may not come about in our lifetime, or even our children's lifetimes, but the work that we do today will help bring about positive change someday, even if we are not alive to witness it. I am coming to understand that the only sustainable way to organize is out of love. Yes, there is a place for anger in social justice work. It often motivates us, but love is what sustains us. We do this work because we love our families, our communities, and want better for generations to come. But our love of community and the vision we are working towards cannot be disconnected from our love and vision for ourselves as individuals. We are important pieces of the puzzle. Part of what loving and taking care of our community means is loving and taking care of ourselves. For me, it is this love that is the connection between social justice and spirituality. I will leave you with a quote by Che Guevara. Let me say, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. This is Lucia Martinez with Generation Justice.